0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview podcast.
1: Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, as Theresa May prepares to trigger Article 50 in the Brexit process, I'm talking to our London editor, Dennis Staunton, about what happens next and how ready both the EU and the UK are for these marathon talks and to Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, about the fiasco of Donald Trump's attempts to amend and replace Obama's health care reform last week and what it says about his relationship with the Republicans in Congress. How will it bode for the other great Trump projects? When Theresa May on Wednesday triggers Article 50, she launches a complex twin-track negotiation process that will be fraught. Divorce talks will start to be followed shortly afterwards by talks on trade and the future relationship. But Michel Barnier, the chief EU negotiator, has been warning that the UK will have to agree to pay the colossal UK bar bill to the EU before embarking on the latter strand of talks. And there's been much Tory talk of uh, no question of paying 60 billion. Is there a way of reconciling their two positions so that there is no immediate collapse in the talks?
0: Yes, what the Europeans are hoping for is that uh, they start talking not actually about the size of the bar bill, but just about how they go about calculating it. And so what they're hoping is that in the first few months that they get some agreement from uh, Britain as to what exactly they're talking about. These are various commitments. Some of these are commitments that have already been made to certain spending programs which carry on beyond the, the, the time that Britain leaves the European Union. Others then are the share that Britain might have to pay for pensions for uh, officials, uh, EU officials, and obviously some of those are British. And then there are various other um, elements of money. So, for example, if Britain wanted to retain access to certain programmes, like, say, the Erasmus programme or Horizon 2020, this uh, research programme, how much they would have to pay for that. So I think what uh, they're going to try to do is to try to defuse. Use this because both sides know that this is a, a really neuralgic and potentially explosive issue in Britain. And so what they'll try to do is just to uh, start talking about and get some agreement about just what they're talking about and how they might go about calculating the figure. And then they'll probably park all of that while the rest of the negotiations uh, continue.
1: Now, people have been talking, Tory uh, ministers have been talking in, in the last few days about uh, being willing to honour their international obligations. Is that code for saying, yeah, we know there's going to be a bill?
0: Yes. Uh, most of those who are actually intimately involved in the talks, uh, they come up with formulations like that. So, in other words, they accept that uh, there will be some kinds of obligations. And so they're uh, they're trying, I think, to wind the tension down a bit and say we're not actually trying to walk away without paying our share of what we owe. But we don't accept uh, this figure that you've uh, thrown on the table, these various figures of 50 or sixty billion, and uh, and so they're not uh, the, the message they want to send to their own constituency here in Britain is we're not just going to be taken for a ride on this, and we will uh, we won't pay any more than we're absolutely uh, you know obliged to pay. So I think that uh, that there is some kind of a softening there, and I th- think there's also in the last few days been some softening. On the rhetoric about the idea of leaving with no deal, and that no deal is better than uh, than a bad deal, and so they, you know, while they, you know, uh, they don't actually contradict that line, they they are now insisting. And In fact, just a few minutes ago in the House of Commons, uh, Boris Johnson was taking questions, and he uh, insisted that in fact there was probably going to be a very good deal because a good deal would be the, in in the interests of both parties.
1: Uh, but the May's suggestion that No Deal is better than a bad deal has opened divisions among the Tories. Some of whom are very clearly uh, hardline deregulators, don't want any of the Brussels baggage left intact. Others more pragmatic. Do, do we know where May is leaning?
0: I think she probably leans towards something more pragmatic. I think she has to be aware of uh, the fact, even though the British government hasn't actually calculated the cost of leaving the EU with no deal, but it is pretty clear that it would be uh, hugely disruptive to both sides, but particularly to, to Britain. And suddenly, you would find that, uh, as Michel Barnier was saying the other day, that there would suddenly be hard customs controls on uh, all of the ports going in and out of Britain, and there'd be backups of trucks and all the rest it, to say nothing of, uh, of the fact that uh, if Britain falls back on World Trade, Trade Organization rules, there are huge tariffs imposed on some goods, and particularly agricultural goods, for example. And so I think that uh, you know, everybody... Uh, intimately involved, and including Theresa May, knows that th- that actually a bad deal would, or no deal would, would actually be a very bad outcome. And so I think they are uh, rolling back. But as you say, there is an element. The hardcore Brexiteers have shifted their position now from a hard Brexit, which is essentially what Theresa May has already embraced, leaving the the single market, leaving uh, most of the customs union, and they're now actually saying, well, you know, uh, really, unless the Europeans give us exactly what we want, unless we have uh, all the benefits if it's more or less that we have now without actually paying the price, then uh, we'd be happier just leaving and we'll do just fine on our own and we'll uh, strike magnificent trade deals all over the world.
1: Does anybody believe that the time frame, which is basically 18 months, uh, is is realistic? It it may be realistic in terms of the divorce talks, but not the future relationship talks.
0: Well, the official position of the British government is that it is realistic. Now, uh, they do accept that there could be some transitional arrangements. The question really is, what is the nature of those transitional arrangements? Uh, is it really a question of having agreed everything within the two years and then saying, well, it may take a few years for some of these things to come into effect? Or are you actually talking about effectively a continuation of negotiations beyond that point? So, for example, you could uh, agree on uh, the, the broad outline of the future trading relationship relationship that you want. But then you might say that actually, uh, after the two years is up, we then start negotiating that trade deal on the basis of these uh, goals that we agree on.
1: Now, the next uh, big business for, for the Commons will be the introduction of the so-called Great Reform Bill. When is that proposed to happen? And and it, it will transfer all legislation that is currently Brussels-based into London, basically Westminster's control. But, but it, yes. interestingly enough, it, there's a very interesting constitutional element of this, that they, they will give the executive, in other words, the government, the power to repeal... Uh, legislation on on an extraordinary basis.
0: Yes, what they're going to do is the Great Repeal Bill and the government will publish a white paper about this on Thursday and then uh, they would expect uh, in May to actually introduce the bill. And it will do two things. One is that uh, it will uh, repeal the the 1972 Act that brought Britain into the European Union, an Act of the House of Commons, uh, but that obviously won't come into effect until Britain has actually left. And then it will also transpose all EU laws and rules into Britain. legislation. And this Henry VIII process, the uh, procedure that you're talking about, what it'll mean is that uh, the executive and officials really will be able to change some of the terms of some of this legislation. So, for example, if uh, some particular law refers to a European institution, they'll be able to uh, just insert something else, some British alternative into that without actually having to go and get a vote in the House of Commons. They will have about 15 other bills which will deal with all all kinds of other things like, say, immigration policy, customs policy, all of this. So uh, the Commons will have a chance to vote on all of that. And what they're now talking about is that there'll be a kind of a sunset clause uh, on uh, any of these actions and changes that the executive makes without a vote in Parliament. So that actually after a couple of years or after a certain period, that uh, Parliament will be able to come and say, look, actually, you overstepped the mark on that one, and we'd like to change it.
1: Now, the Irish government is hoping for special references in in, uh, in Theresa May's statement uh, tomorrow to Ireland and, more crucially, in Donald Tusk's uh, reply on Friday.
0: Yes, uh, I think we probably can expect some reference in Theresa May's letter to the special circumstances of Ireland and uh, wishing to retain the common travel area and to uh, respect the uh, Good Friday Agreement and also then to uh, uh, to ensure that the border is as frictionless as she puts it, and as seamless uh, as uh, as it possibly can be, uh, and that there should be no return to the borders of the past. Uh, two days after that, uh, Donald Tusk will reply with draft negotiating guidelines for the European Union. And again, the Irish government is confident that there will be something within that within those guidelines to say that we need to deal with these specific Irish issues quite early in the negotiations. Now, uh, Enda Kenny, when I was speaking to him in Rome the other day, uh, was stressing that what we will see on Friday are draft negotiating guidelines, and so that those uh, will will be uh, can be amended between now and the 29th of April, when EU leaders will then meet in Brussels to adopt them. And he expects that a a number of countries will have issues and so that what we see on Friday may not be the final uh, negotiating guidelines. And then once the... the EU leaders adopt whatever the final guidelines are. They then have to go to uh, the European Commission to draw up a more detailed negotiating mandate and a kind of a, a, a timetable for exactly how they should uh, how they should deal with things. But as you were saying at the beginning, this whole business of the sequencing of the negotiations is uh, going to be almost the first item on the negotiating menu because Britain would really like to see the uh, the divorce talks and the talks about the future relationship between Britain and the EU. On phrasing in parallel. Uh, the Europeans have initially been saying, no, we need to do the divorce talks first, then we deal with the others. I think what, again, you might see is that they start the divorce talks if they go well on certain areas, like, for example, the acquired rights, the rights of uh, EU nationals now living in Britain and the rights of British nationals living in the European Union and the uh, the methodology about the money, that then probably in the new year you could find that the divorce talks continue, but they also start talking about the future relationship. So they will then start to run on parallel.
1: Now, Theresa May met uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish First Minister, on Monday, and she appears to have made no concessions on either Brexit demands or the negotiating process or enhanced devolution. Do we know even if the powers brought back from Brussels will be devolved to the Scots?
0: No, we don't, because uh, the way this works is that there are certain uh, uh, policy areas, like, say, agriculture, where the policy is made in Brussels, but it's then uh, implemented by the devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And so the question then is, when when these come back, do, uh does everything go to the devolved administrations or does some policy remain at westminster is that uh, sent back to westminster and that's going to be the subject of some negotiation between westminster and the devolved administrations so they haven't made a commitment to uh restoring uh you know, to giving all of those powers to scotland and in fact uh theresa may has said that uh you said a few weeks ago that these devolution acts in 1998 that they were um that they were designed at a time when obviously the expectation was that everybody would be in the European Union or that the UK would be in the European Union and they may have to be revisited in the light of Brexit. So uh, so that's certainly going to be something up for discussion.
1: Um, now, just finally, you're, you're, you're just back from Rome where the 27 met to celebrate 60 years of the European Union and to point a way to the future uh, to, and to the shape of the Union in the future. Was it credible and, and how optimistic did you find them? They were more
0: optimistic than I think they would have been had had they been meeting uh, a few months ago. The first thing that was noticeable was that Theresa May wasn't there, and nobody expected her to be there. Nobody was offended that she wasn't there. But they also, there was no sense of loss. There was no sense uh, of a, a limb missing or even an extremity missing, and that you were uh, that you were yearning for it. And I think that uh, the shock of Brexit, the shock of the referendum decision, has subsided, and that uh, the Europeans are now ready to just get on with it and they and to get on with their future without Britain. I think also the fact that the uh, Dutch elections uh, saw the far-right party of fielders performing better than before, but not as well as they had been expected to, has also eased some nerves about the rise of uh, far-right populism in Europe. Those fears obviously could reignite if Marine Le Pen becomes president of France. In fact, that would put the future of the entire European project in question. But I think there is a, there was certainly a greater confidence where it was less plausible was that they uh, they adopted this uh, joint declaration, which uh, highlighted the role of uh, multi-speed Europe, or the idea that some groups of countries could decide to forge ahead with integration at a faster pace than others. And the subtext of this is that uh, some countries that are currently within an inner core, like say the euro, could perhaps be eased out of it. You know, so that you'd actually find uh, your, your your the right pace for you. And there was some resistance to this, including by. Uh, Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, who, uh, who who gave a very passionate speech talking about his own biography, having grown up in Poland, and just saying that actually uh, the European Union will be united, or it will not be at all; it will simply uh, not survive. And so the, those tensions about exactly how uh, Europe uh, progresses in the future, those are are very much there, and I think we certainly haven't seen the, the last of that. And that that conversation and that discussion about uh, about the business of a multi-speed Europe, which has been around for 25 years but the next sort of iteration of that i think is going to be the big item of on the agenda once the elections in france and in germany are out of the way uh, later this year and the brexit negotiations are underway
1: thank you dennis after the break i'll be back with suzanne lynch and donald trump I'm Cathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning Women's Podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com, forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Suzanne Lynch, the repeal of Obamacare was Donald Trump's central election pledge, but last week's debacle in Congress has now pushed it off the agenda. An alliance of centrists and ultra-conservatives defied the Republican Party leadership of Paul Ryan. Is this a foretaste of more to come?
2: Yes, I think um, the the rapid demise of this replacement bill for Obamacare took everyone by surprise. Now, it's only 18 days since Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, introduced the bill. 18 days later, it had fallen apart. Uh, they decided to pull the bill before it went to Congress, not having uh, sufficient support. So this has been seen really as the first real test of President Trump's congressional influence, can he bring um, the Republican majority in the House along with them? In this case, uh, it seems he could not. Now there are various um, explanations, lots of finger pointing going on here in Washington about what happened, whose fault it is. And um, there is a sense, and there had been from the very beginning, that in contrast to Obamacare, which was painfully discussed, analyzed, went to committees, meetings across the country on Obamacare, that this bill was pretty much rushed through. Yes, the Republicans under Ryan had been working on it for some time, but when they came up with their proposal and published that uh, nearly three weeks ago, it then went at lightning speed through the Congress, and that was just never going to work. But I do think uh, their questions have to be asked about the judgment here, President Trump, uh, and and Speaker Ryan. for taking this uh, this policy and putting it as a priority. Um, Trump said he was putting health care reform first ahead of other measures like tax reform, for example. But now that strategy is being questioned. Was this the right strategy after all?
1: Now, is Obamacare now secure?
2: Well, Paul Ryan announced on Friday, uh, quite despondently, that it was there for the foreseeable future. But it does mean um, there are still powers to dismantle or to change some of the legalities around Obamacare. Um, to tinker along the edges, if you like, but at the moment it looks like uh, the Republicans are going to park this. And I mean, it's it's a, it's a very interesting um, anecdote or example of political power, obviously. Um, the Republicans had voted against Obamacare and pledged to repeal it for years. Uh, but the longer it was in place, uh, the more the public uh, went behind it, despite all the teething problems. We're now seven years into Obamacare. So I suppose it's just an example of how difficult it is uh, to dismantle something that once it has been embedded for all its flaws. So I think what's quite interesting about this is, yes, it was the conservative, very right-wing part of the Republican Party that really stopped this. Uh, They were concerned that there was too much federal money going into healthcare on, on the point of principle. They're against that. But we also saw, as you said, moderates uh, who were worried about the impact of uh, repealing Obamacare on their constituents. Um, For example, in certain states where uh, Medicaid, that's the uh, program for poor, lower income people, where a lot of people have come into uh, the net under Obamacare, they were also concerned about the impact of this. So I think what's interesting about this is that Trump uh, has had to fight in all parts of the Republican Party on this, and they really do seem as divided as ever. So the obvious question is, will they be as divided on other issues when he tries to get the congressional support for some of his other measures.
1: Yes, that, I was going to come on to that. I mean, is the Republican Party effectively un- ungovernable? I was struck by a New York Times piece which, which talked about how, as a party, they haven't uh, passed substantial legislation uh, since 2005 and they perhaps don't know how to govern anymore, that this is something that the, the new generation of Republicans don't know how, how to, uh, to... to do you use the, the legislature?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a and Democrats have reacted with glee to this, having listened to the criticism of Republicans for so many years in Obamacare. But I think there is a question of judgment here by the senior Republicans, by Paul Ryan, for example. I mean, I think he really personally put a lot behind this, uh, this repeal and replace program. Um, and he really thought he had got, he would be able to bring people with him. Um, and it's quite interesting the personalities involved here. Trump is, is, is not a detail man. Um, But over the last couple of weeks, he came on board with Obamacare, he visited Congress, he hosted a lot of skeptical Republicans in the White House, and both he and Mike Pence had a series of meetings trying to rally the troops, as it were. You know, this is the Trump that, you know, he brags about, the man who can do a deal, who can negotiate, who can bring people with him. But in this case, it did did not happen. Um, Now, the the issue of whether, as you say there, whether the Republican Party, is this this a, a taste of things to come? Um, it is quite interesting because the House Freedom Caucus. This is the uh, the group of approximately thirty representatives who, led by Mark Meadows, who who ultimately went against Trump on this, and would not back it. I mean, they they have worked on a group on this issue, the thirty of them. But there has been a sense that maybe would Trump perhaps be able to pick them off, if you like, certain issues that they could be divided on, and in that way you you may divide and conquer. So it's it's not it's not clear whether this group of thirty. Um, will move together as a pack on the next legislation. So, for example, there seems to be different opinions on tax, for example, within that group of 30. Um, So I think uh, the fissures we saw with the Obamacare may not necessarily replicate themselves when we come to other legislation proposed,
1: and and Paul Ryan now his credibility has been seriously dented, and and Trump is somebody who always likes to have somebody to blame. Has he has he turned on Ryan yet, or is he showing signs of it?
2: Yes, this is quite interesting. And by Friday evening, which was after a dramatic day, which saw Ryan come to the White House and say we're not ready to to go with this bill. Um, there, there was a lot of speculation about the relationship between Trump and Ryan, mostly because Trump tweeted a, a pretty cryptic tweet on Saturday, urging people to tune into a Fox News uh, TV program later that day, and during which the host called for Ryan to resign. Now, Trump moved back from that very quickly afterwards. His chief of staff, Rens Priebus, also denied that Trump had any issue at all with, with Ryan on Sunday morning. The two men did speak on the phone for an hour on, on Saturday. Um, So there is very much a message coming from the White House that no, Trump has not lost uh, confidence in Ryan. Uh, And saying that, I think there's a huge credibility issue. Ryan himself is so personally involved in the detail of this plan. Um, but at the moment, there is no sign of him being ousted. There doesn't seem to be support for this across the House. There's no uh, obvious person to succeed, Ryan. So I think, if you like, the Republicans will give him the benefit of the doubt on this. He is safe for the moment, but it undoubtedly does raise questions about his credibility as a leader in not getting this signature uh, repeal plan through. Now,
1: in, in other developments in, in, in Congress, we're, we're going to see almost certainly the Republicans get their Supreme Court nomination through. But uh, in the House, uh, Devin Nunez uh, is coming under pressure from Democrats to resign from a committee inquiring into Russian links.
2: Yes, this is quite an interesting story that has emerged here in the last few days. Um, last week, in a very surprising and quite bizarre move, Devin Nunes um, called a press conference, quite an impromptu press conference, um, in which he discussed information he said he'd been given about intelligence surveillance of uh, Mr. Trump's associates. Um, now, this was the House, the House uh, Intelligence Committee, of which he is a chair, that immediately... Um, prompted outrage from a lot of the members of that committee who said, well, why haven't you informed your colleagues about this? Why are you informing the media? And number two, why have you informed President Trump on this? You are supposed to be partisan. We're investigating the Russian meddling in the election. And you are seen as perhaps too close uh, to President Trump. This, things were compounded over the last 24 hours or so when it was revealed that actually um, the representative had received this information about these intelligence reports on the grounds of the White House. It's now emerged that he travelled to the White House last week um, and received these intelligence reports. Now he has—he's refusing to say who the source of these reports are and that he just met somebody in the grounds of the White House that this is the safest place to meet them. But obviously inevitably a lot of Democrats have come out and, and, and really said that they believe it was someone in the White House who leaked this information to uh, Devin Nunes. So he is facing pressure from a lot of his colleagues on the House Intelligence Committee to resign as chair. In saying that, it does seem that he he is quite a popular representative. He's got quite a lot of support across both sides of the aisle. But in saying that, we've seen a lot of senior Democrats. We saw his his counterpart, Adam Schiff. He's the the committee's top Democrat, and Nancy Pelosi, uh, the House Democratic leader, who said that Mr. Nunes needs to step down, that he's too Close to the White House to run an independent inquiry uh, at the House Intelligence Committee. He,
1: he was very much part of the, of the Trump uh, election yep. campaign, and 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 you can see why it would suit Trump uh, for information to emerge about in, intelligence gathering that might might have scooped up some of his supporters inadvertently, uh, because it yes, distracts attention yeah, yeah. from from the Russian claims.
2: Yes, absolutely. You're right. Just to mention there that he was very closely involved in Trump's campaign. Um, And interestingly, last week uh, when Trump uh, did an interview, lengthy interview with Time magazine, he mentioned this. He mentioned um, these revelations uh, that Nunes had made last week. So, yeah, we actually saw Trump himself draw attention to this. He was obviously quite pleased at this new angle, particularly a few days after James Comey's uh, testimony at the House.
1: Now just finally, I wanted to turn to Trump, who is expected to announce uh, that he is going to dismantle substantial parts of uh, Obama's climate change legacy, uh, specifically the clean power plan um, in the name of energy independence and supposedly restoring thousands of coal mining jobs. But will coal, m- coal jobs come back?
2: Yeah this is this is expected today it's going to be a big move on Tuesday to roll back some of the the key Obama legislation on climate action. Now as you mentioned there the the key piece of legislation is Obama's Clean Power Plan CPP it's known as. This was introduced in 2015 and it essentially restricted emissions at coal-powered uh, power plants across the country. Um now it seems that um Mr. Trump today will only be able to instruct the Environmental Protection Agency to review this. So he will not be able to dismantle it unilaterally this week, uh, but he's going to set the wheels in motion for that to be done. Now, this legislation had already been on hold actually last year because a number of Republican controlled states and more than 100 energy and mining mining companies have gone to court about this. So obviously, uh, a lot of these mining old energy companies are are thrilled at this uh, development uh, from Trump. Um, and uh, they are, have welcomed this. They're, we're, oh, we're expecting Trump to talk about the pro-business agenda, et cetera. But to your point there on the mining jobs, yeah, exactly. He has promised to bring back a lot of the mining jobs to the United States. But even some chief executives of the mining companies say this is going to be a very difficult task. It is not as simple as uh, old energy being replaced by new energy means. In fact, a lot of the mining jobs were lost to changes in industrialization, changes in technology, changes in manufacturing. Uh, so this simple equation actually belies a very, very complex issue. Um, but in saying that, he is likely to please a lot of his supporters who were skeptical, skeptical of uh, President Obama's environmental moves and, of course, controversially appointed Scott Pruitt as the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. As Attorney General of Oklahoma, he was actually party to the case against uh, the Obama's Clean Power Plan. So it'll be interesting to see his views when this announcement is made on Tuesday.
1: And ominously, is this also about the first steps towards um, the U.S. repudiating their commitments under the Paris Accord?
2: Well, interestingly, and and the announcement and the documents are not out yet, but There is a possibility that President Trump actually will not mention uh, the climate, uh, the Paris Accords. Um, He has previously said that it's a bad deal, that he wants to rip up the Paris Accords that were signed last September. Um, But there has been speculation that he, in fact, won't mention this uh, when he announces this revision of the Clean Power Plan. And that perhaps his daughter, Ivanka Trump, and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, that they have been pressing him privately to maybe not go so tough against the paraclimate deal but as you say look that remains to be seen we know his views on this and we know scott pruitt's views on this the head of environmental protection agency just at the weekend he again he reiterated his opposition to this saying that america had been unfairly treated uh, in comparison to big polluters like china and india so uh, whether that actually though was mentioned in the announcement on tuesday remains to be seen
1: Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks to Jen Staunton and Suzanne Lynch, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Jennifer Ryan. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.